Psalm 108. I remembered an old phrase uh, spoken, I believe, at first by Neil Young. Neil Young said, it's better to burn out than just fade away. And uh, I'm pretty sure it was Neil Young who said that. I know it was Kurt Cobain who wrote that on his suicide note. It is better to burn out than just fade away. I think there's another option. It's not burn out, flash in the pan, or fade out into the distance. I think there's a better option, a godly option, a biblical option. The psalmist says in Psalm 108, My heart is steadfast. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing. I will sing praises even with my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. And I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great above the heavens. Your truth reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. And your glory above all the earth. That your beloved may be delivered. Save me with your right hand and answer me. God has spoken in His holiness. I will exult, I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is also the helmet of my head, Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbowl. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. Over Philistia I will shout aloud. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not yourself, O God, rejected us? Will you not go forth with our armies, O God? O give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. Through God we will do valiantly. It is He who shall tread down our enemies. Father, this morning... Lord, I pray for the steadfast heart. Not a heart that flares up and flames out. Even in spiritual life, Father, there are so many who, who like the seed thrown out onto the, to the hard ground, might spring up and then immediately burn in the hot sun. Lord, not, not a heart that withers away and, and eventually just fades into the nothingness, but a steadfast heart, Lord. One who walks consistently with you. A heart beating with the truth every day. A heart awash in your grace constantly. A steadfast heart, Lord. I pray that you would show us this morning how we might as your children be steadfast in our faith and our commitment and our trust and our walk with you. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, strengthen our hearts for the truth of this message today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The heart. Probably the most used word in American popular music today anyway. Somewhat overused, I would imagine. It's just been described as stout, chicken, great, hot, warm, cold, broken, whole, tender, bold, stony, soft, green, blue, red, white, faint, true, Heavy, light, open, down, and shallow. And probably many more words that we could sit around and think of that describe or have been used to describe the heart. Psalm 108 is the psalm of the steadfast heart. 
Now with this psalm, we enter into the fifth and final book of the psalms. Actually, we enter in in Psalm 107, which I've skipped for this morning, and Wednesday night we'll go back and pick up and begin with Psalm 107, book five of the psalms, running from Psalm 107 to Psalm 150, the last book of this amazing collection of songs and praises and poems that we have been reading through and studying these months. Book five of the psalms. Now it parallels another fifth book. If you've been tracking these things, you know it would be Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The five books of Torah and the five books of the Psalms paralleling these things. And so now we're in book five, which parallels Deuteronomy. Why is that? I'll tell you Wednesday night. You've got to come Wednesday night to hear about that. As we go back and pick up with Psalm 107 and explain this fifth and final parallel. And it's marvelous. But this morning, Psalm 108... Psalm 108 is a song of steadfastness, of a steady confidence in the Lord, the song of a steadfast heart. Now, the heading says a song, a psalm of David. And while this is true, the words are David's, the arrangement probably is not. What do you mean? Well, did the psalm sound familiar to you? As we're reading through it, have you heard some of these words before? I will awaken the dawn, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. Some of this sounds familiar, it rings familiar, it it should. Because we've already read every word of this psalm before. We've already, in essence, covered the words in Psalm 108 before. You see, Psalm 108 is pieced together from two other psalms of David. The, The psalmist, the writer, the arranger, takes from Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11, and that becomes verses 1 through 5. Of Psalm 108. Psalm 57, 7 through 11 is the first half of this psalm. Then you go over to Psalm 60, verses 5 through 12, and it's the second half of this psalm. So, what the writer here, the arranger, does is take these two other psalms, piece from each one, put it together, and we get Psalm 108. I, I think of Psalm 108 like a Reese's peanut butter cup. Those of you who like Reese's peanut butter cups, I'm a big fan. And I remember the old 70's commercial, perhaps you remember it too, where the two people are walking along and the one's eating a Hershey's candy bar and the other one's got a thing of, a tub of peanut butter just eating out of it, which I never did. Did any of you just eat a tub of peanut butter? Did, a few of you are, okay, weirdos, but that's just, walking down the street, this is my candy, I didn't get that. But run into each other and the candy bar goes in the peanut butter and they look at each other and the one says, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. Well, you got peanut butter on my chocolate. And they both stop and eat it. And do you remember the tagline? Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Two great tastes that taste great together. Well, that's Psalm 108. It is a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Two great tastes that taste great together. And had you not known that this psalm was pieced together from two others, you wouldn't even know it. You wouldn't recognize that these are two separate psalms because they flow together. They taste good together. It really comes off as one beautiful and powerful statement about the steadfast heart. And these two great psalms are pieced together, arranged at a time that Israel would desperately need steadfastness. Where they would desperately need that that strength, that confidence of David. When was that? Well, most likely Psalm 108 was arranged at the time of the return of the exiles from captivity in Babylon. Going back, pulling from the psalms of David and piecing together. We don't know exactly who wrote it. We know David wrote the words. But who arranged Psalm 108? No idea. Perhaps Zerubbabel? Or the high priest Joshua? Or 
Nehemiah or Ezra, one of the, one of the guys who came back? I, I don't know. But it's put together, and the people of Israel needed it. Coming back to their homeland after 70 years of captivity. Stop and think about that. Being driven out of your home, cast out of your home, drawn into another land. Say you were taken from your home here in Washington over to Iraq and imprisoned for 70 years. Children born there who never knew your home here. A life lost that once was here. And now, now you have opportunity and you come back. What would that be like? For those older who had lived out most of their days in Babylon to come back and to see the homeland destroyed, flattened, famous or favorite old places not even standing, or if they're there at all, half walls broken down. It would take confidence. It would take courage. It would take a unique strength, a spiritual strength that only God could give to do something like that, to come back into your land and to begin to reclaim it and to rebuild. And the Jewish people have done that not once, but at least twice. At least twice where they've been completely driven out before coming back in. Smallish bands, the exiles, were coming home and they would need a steadfast heart. In the Bible, the word heart is used some 856 times in 792 verses. So this word is used a lot and and speaks to us a lot. It it brings understanding, especially in our culture and our language. We, We get it. And yet, in American culture, the word heart has to do more with feeling than with substance. In the Bible, the word heart has more to do with substance than with feeling. And we need to recognize that and know that. That it has to do with the core of your being. To speak of a man's heart, a woman's heart in the Bible, is not how they're feeling that afternoon. <laughs> my heart's so fluttered with love. That's not it. It's my heart. Who I am. When David writes, my heart is steadfast, he's saying, I am steadfast in you. All that I am, strong in you. And that's the biblical view of the heart. Not how we feel, but who we are. It's a much more significant use of the word. Now, unfortunately, the first mention of the word heart in the Bible is not a positive one. It may not surprise you to hear this. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. First time the word heart is used, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And thus the word heart is introduced in the Scripture. <laughs> the evil of the heart. And, and I believe it's the first mention of the word there because that is the human tendency. And the Bible will expound on this over and over that the tendency, the heart trouble that we have is a tendency toward hardness. The hard heart. The Bible over and over, the Lord through His Scriptures warns against the hardness of heart. It is the primary cardiac warning in Scripture. Against the hardness of heart. Proverbs 28 verse 14. Solomon wrote, He who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Over in the New Testament, Jesus is speaking with some of the the Jewish leaders and they said, Why did Moses command to give a wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Because Jesus said, It's it's just not okay. Divorce is not okay with me. Why why then did Moses give a certificate of divorce? And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. I mean no offense 
to those who have gone through the tragedy and the trauma and the pain of divorce. But there is a reality, gang, that any time a relationship is broken, be it a marriage relationship, a family relationship, a friend relationship, any time a relationship is broken, our hearts harden a bit. Any time there's a wounding of the heart, it gets hard. It's a physical truth. That if the heart is hurt in any way, it t- tends to scar. And what does scarring do? It hardens. And so when a relationship is broken, we did, just did a marriage yesterday, a marriage of Pat Greenlaw and, and Shelby, Pat and Shelby Greenlaw. And it was, it was a great time and a wonderful wedding to be at and be a part of. And I told them, at the end of the wedding, in fact, something just struck me as I was talking to them about Jesus being primary in their marriage. About the whole idea of a first flesh marriage. Jesus says, don't you understand that, that you're, you're to be one flesh. But when Jesus says one flesh, he also, it means first flesh. And so I was saying, Pat, put Shelby first. Shelby, put Pat first. Both of you put your marriage first, but primarily put Jesus first. And then I made this statement, and this is where it, it struck me on the spot. The statement that was in my notes was that if you put Jesus first in your marriage, your marriage will succeed. And the thought suddenly came into my head, then why do so many Christian marriages fail? And the answer is simple. Because we haven't put Jesus first. The moment we stop putting Jesus first, the marriage is doomed to fail, or at least not to be what it can be. The hardened heart. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says, This I say, and I affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of the heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. And Paul is very clear and he's right on. That's not how you came to the Lord. That's not how you came to understand Jesus. You don't come to understand Jesus by an open mind and a hard heart. It's not how it works. It never works that way. In fact, it's never the facts that bring you to the Lord. It's faith. Paul says down in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And something I often pray, I've told you before, I pray for myself, I pray for our leaders, I pray for each of us. Lord, give us thick skin in this world and soft hearts. You know, thick skin to handle the arrows of the devil. Thick skin to handle the negativity and the hardness of the world around us. But hearts within that are soft and pliable and tender and hearing what the Spirit of God has to say. Hebrews 3.13 We're told, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And you know something else that strikes me? You cannot sin without your heart getting hard. You have to harden the heart to sin against the Lord. And that's one of the problems of sin. One of the many problems is the more you sin, the harder the heart gets. Because you can't sin and be open to the Lord. You can't sin and be tender-hearted with the Father. If you choose sin, you've got to shut off for that brief period of time, for that choice, for the action. You've got to shut this stuff down. I'll be back with you later, Lord. And so the heart gets hardened. The tendency of the heart is hardness. 
the world, sin, the deceitfulness of sin, encourages hardness of heart. How then do we hold fast? How then do we maintain the the tender heart? How do we maintain a steadfastness of heart? What do you do if your heart has already been seriously damaged? Or broken? Or bruised? And there's a, a hardness there. Again, physically speaking, we know damage produces scarring and scars produce hardness. I've got a pretty tough nose. Having grown up with numerous surgeries, as many of you know, uh, growing up with a cleft lip and cleft palate, actually being born that way, I had many surgeries, and one of them was on my nose. And nowadays, and I have to remind my kids of this sometimes, especially the little ones. Now that I've got little ones again, they always want to pinch, you know? And they go for the nose. And it seems like the older you get, the more they go for the nose, I think, because there's more nose for them to go for. (laughs) You know that the only two things that continue growing your entire life are your ears and your nose? So we're all going to be dopey someday. Where we're going. But like Naomi, she'll grab my nose. And my nose, unlike many other noses, is pretty hard. You know, it's, it's the cartilage because it's scar tissue in there. The average nose, you know, I look at the, it was the beginning of, toy, uh, of a Christmas story where the kids are pressed up against the window looking in the toy store and their noses are just flat. Again, I can't do that. That would hurt. Because that's what happens when we, when we scar. It, it hardens. And the same thing is true spiritually. And the reality among all of us, I don't know of a person who's lived any amount of time who hasn't had some woundedness in the heart. Who hasn't had some scarring at some point that tends to start to develop a hardness. So what do we do about this? How do you fix a damaged heart? How do you move from scarred to steadfast? I love the King James translation of the first verse here. My heart is steadfast, O God. That's the NASB. King James says, O God, my heart is fixed. My heart is fixed. And that can go two ways. You want to know how to fix your heart? You want to walk out of here this morning with a heart that's fixed, a heart that is more steadfast? Gang, it begins in worship. Worship is the first step to the softening of the heart. Watch this. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing. I will sing praises. Even with my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Why does he awaken the dawn? Because he's up before the dawn. Why is he up before the dawn? Because he can't stay in bed. He's got to worship. He's so excited to be up with the coming of the sun to praise God as the day begins. And the first key to a steadfast heart, a steadfast heart, if you want to jot some things down, the steadfast heart rejoices in the praise of God. The steadfast heart rejoices in the praise of God. It's been said, and you've probably heard this, the heart of every matter is a matter of the heart. The heart of every matter is a matter of the heart. And you know, the truth is, worship reveals where the heart is. Because the steadfast heart in the Lord rejoices to worship God, rejoices in the praise of God. And I've said this recently, I'll say it again, worship and praise is not a buffer zone in church. It's not a buffer so that we can arrive, you know, as we had our services before, worship first, so that we can arrive at some point during the worship and get settled and then get the Bible out so we're ready to go when Pastor Rick is going to teach. That's a misunderstanding of worship. It is not a buffer. 
it is not superfluous to the real and more heady Bible study at hand. Now, I don't want to undermine Bible study at all. You know how I feel about that. In fact, we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But the steadfast heart rejoices in the praise of God. You guys, if you've been around for a while, you know that I've had a couple of heart issues myself. Two times in the emergency room in the hospital because of severe angina, heart pain. And the docs have had no idea what was going on with that. In fact, to this day, I've had all kinds of tests run and everything. Nothing. And checking my heart today, the doctor looks at it and says, it doesn't look like anything ever happened. Completely normal. No scarring. No ten, no, nothing there to say that anything has gone wrong. No heart attacks. No damage. Praise God. But it's what they call myocarditis, which is an inflammation of, of the heart. Just myocarditis. It sounds like a good doctor word. What it means is we don't know. <laughs> Your heart got inflamed. Why don't you just say that? Because myocarditis makes me look better. <laughs> Sound better. Myocarditis. Why was there pain there? Because somehow my heart got inflamed and the doctor thinks maybe it's not a heart issue at all. Maybe it was an inflammation issue. So he's got me on aspirin and that's fun to take. An inflammation issue. Because when the heart gets inflamed, it's hard for the blood to flow the way it's supposed to flow. And pain comes. And the reality, gang, an early sign of spiritual heart trouble is when we cannot worship freely. When I'm having trouble worshiping. David says, I will sing praises. He says, even with my soul. Well, the word soul there in the Hebrew is kabod. You Bible students know kabod is the word ascribed to God most often as the word glory. The weighty substance of God. David's not just saying his soul. He's saying, I will sing praises with my glory, with my strength, with all that I am. I will praise from that place, that deepest place of me, my strength and my substance. When we read this last week, Psalm 103, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. And worship refocuses the heart on the central issue of life, truly on the heart of life, and that is the glory of God. And that's where we begin. The softening of the heart begins in that place of worship, the heart that rejoices in the praise of God. It signifies, gang, the heart that is fixed on God and being fixed by God. G.S. Bose commentator from many years ago wrote the following he said the wheels of a chariot revolve but the axle tree turns not the sails of a mill move with the wind but the mill itself moves not the earth is carried around on its orbit but its center is fixed so should a Christian be able amidst the changing and and amidst the changing of life and the changing of fortunes to say Oh God, my heart is fixed. My heart is fixed. And a steadfast heart, a fixed heart, is a heart of worship. With all the constant change and flux in our lives, everything going around in our economy, in our world, in our work and home lives, there's only one center. There's one constant on which we remain steadfast, fixed. And that is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12.2 Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Why do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Because as Hebrews 13.8 tells us, He is unchanging. He is steadfast. 
He is rock solid. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the fixed point of the steady heart. And so we worship Jesus. We rejoice in Jesus. We praise Jesus as that fixed point. And as we worship, our hearts gain. Our hearts remain steadfast. Now, the inspiration of these two psalms into one is obviously inspired because they fit so well. Notice this. I'll read verses 4 through 6. But notice how verse 5, which is Psalm 57, spills over into verse 6, Psalm 60, as though they're one psalm, as though they were written together in the first place. He writes, For your loving kindness is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and answer me. Like one psalm together. And the steadfast heart rejoices in the praise of God. And as we worship, two attributes come to mind. I would say the two primary attributes of God. And that is grace and truth. Grace and truth. How many times do we run into this? How many times in the Psalms have we seen these two words paired together in verse 4? Your loving kindness is great above the heavens. And your truth reaches to the skies. The second thing to know about a steadfast heart, it relaxes in the person of God. The steadfast heart relaxes, or you could say is softened, in the person of God. The person of God, yes, grace and truth. Grace and truth is the person of God. John 1.17 tells us the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The person of God. The heart fixed on Jesus Rests in, relaxes in, is softened by the person of Jesus. How does that work? Well, the grace of Jesus just simply softens a hard heart. The grace of Christ softens a hard heart. Romans 2.4 tells us it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. How many of you can relate to that? I mean, think about when you came to the Lord, when you gave your life to the Lord. That isn't, isn't it true that callousness just kind of melts away in the face of His grace? I have seen some of the most macho of men reduced to tears when they recognize grace. I've seen women come out of lives of hardness and abuse and pain turn into just lives of joy realizing there's a man of such grace as Jesus Christ. He softens the heart. It's God's grace that softens the heart. I said this before, I'll say it again. Faith is never worked out in the head. Faith is worked out in the heart. You can have all the facts in the world. You can know the Bible inside and out as far as one word after another. A lot of theologians who aren't even believers because they know what the Word says, but they've never had a moment of faith. They've never had the heart moment. The head moment has been working and working and working. But the change is needed in the heart. You know, we can change our mind as quick as as the weather changes around here. But the heart takes a little more time to change. It only changes by faith. There comes a moment in all of our lives where you have to, regardless of all the facts before you, all the proof that is there before you, you have to say, I see all that, but I choose now. I choose to believe in Jesus. A moment of faith happens. And the second that moment of faith happens, Jesus comes in and begins to start working on that heart. And softening it. And changing it. Grace does it. Combined with truth. And notice it's always grace and truth. It's never truth and grace. Because again, truth doesn't bring you to grace. Grace brings you to truth. 
The grace of God, the kindness of God that leads us in. But the truth of Jesus relaxes the callous heart. As much as the grace of Jesus softens, the truth relaxes because I don't have to fear the lies of the world anymore. And this is a wonderful truth to me. I don't have to worry about what's being said out there. And God reminds me of this from time to time and I need to be reminded of all the false teaching out there that can really get my back up. I can relax in the truth because the truth reigns supreme. No matter what else we say or want to believe, truth always, truth always wins. It always comes out. And we can rest in His truth. Find peace in that place. Jesus said in John 8, 31, if you continue in My Word, then you're truly disciples of Mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. My heart becomes relaxed because of the truth. Nothing softens the heart like that combination of the person of God and Jesus Christ, grace and truth. Nothing maintains that softness like His grace and His truth. That's why we stay in the Bible so much, by the way. I had a great talk last night, uh, again at the wedding, uh, sitting with Mark Harris. And Mark's just one of my favorite people because he's just so funny and he's... he's He's an intelligent guy, and we were sitting there talking about lots of different things. He said, hey, have you read this new book? And he gave me the title. I won't say it right now. Okay, I will. Radical. I don't know if you've heard of the book Radical. I haven't even read it. I hadn't even heard of it. He said, oh yeah, this, this one, this is the new book that's going around in, in Christian circles, and it's, it's kind of the buzz you know, in all sorts of churches, and, and Bible study groups are getting together, and they're reading the book Radical. And he said, Rick, I just got to ask you a question. He said, take a look at the book. I need your opinion on it. And I said, well, Why? And he said, well, it's just, I read it, and everybody's so excited about it. He said, I, I, I was good. It was fine. But I don't see what the excitement is. And, and I said to him, you know, Mark, I'll tell you why. When you've been in this book, all the other books just kind of don't quite get there. You know? It, it's amazing to me how we have Bible, I love how we call them Bible study groups reading books about the Bible. Why not read the Bible about the Bible? Jesus says, if you continue in My Word, you're truly My disciples. You want a steadfast heart? Continue in the truth. Thank you. You want a steadfast heart? You're drawn there by the grace of Jesus. And you continue in His truth. Grace and truth. Read on verse 7. God has spoken in His holiness. I will exult. I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. And the Jewish people coming back from captivity would have loved to hear this. To be reminded of this. All of these geographical locations making up there the land of Israel. For them to remember, this is God's land. This does not belong to the enemies round about. This does not belong to our Babylonian captors. This belongs to the people of God. This land is God's land and He portions it back to Israel. Third thing to note, the steadfast heart is renewed in the portion of God. The steadfast heart is renewed in the portion of God. And this is absolutely critical. If you want a steady heart in the Lord... To recognize what you have you do not own. The land you live on, it's not yours. 
It also doesn't belong to Island County. <laughs> I had to get that little dig in there. It is absolutely true that the more things you own, the more your things own you. The Lord's portion renews that steadfast heart. I remember the very first house that Cheryl and I bought. In fact, for years as a young youth pastor, we couldn't afford, you know, barely our car, much less a house. And so we rented, and Cheryl and I just got, we said, hey, you know, if we have to rent the rest of our lives, praise God, we're not here for long anyway, it doesn't matter. And then we had an opportunity to buy our first house, and we bought it, and I was freaking out. You know, signing those documents and, and realizing what I was in for and the loan and all that stuff. And then we got a, a second house, sold that, got another house. And we sold that. We moved up here, bought another house and sold that and bought our land. And I'll tell you what, for the first several years of, of living over here, on a daily basis, I found myself thanking God that I got that day in the house. Because I didn't see how there were going to be very many. I didn't see how there was any way we were going to be able to survive in that, in that home, on that property. I, I couldn't afford it. So out of, just, it's out of my comfort zone, way out. Until I finally realized, and I think it took two or three years, and I'm sure it was in a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night Bible study that it hit me. It's not my house. That's not my land. So if I lose it, God's got somewhere else. Amen. And when I came to that place, I just went, oh, Cool. <laughs> I can live here peacefully. I don't have to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow because it's not mine. The truth is, gang, we own nothing. It is all the Lord's. It all belongs to Him. Job understood that. Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If I have anything this morning, it's because God said, I'd like you to have this. If I have any success in business or life, it's because God says, I want to bless you in this. If I have any holdings be it land or stocks or anything else, God says, I'd like you to take care of this for a while. But it belongs to Him, not me. So, it's really His problem. Not mine. But how many of us find money or possessions a source of stress and worry? How how many times, recently, especially with Christmas coming on, (laughs) do we have to spend all this money on stuff? We sat in a staff meeting and we were talking about just doing like a, a gift exchange of some time and, and Les says, can I just point something out? I don't need anything. <laughs> I don't need more stuff. You know, so I'm going to get him something really big. <laughs> just as a reminder of my stupidity. Anyway, you remember last week we, we were talking in Psalm 103 and we ended with this Verse, Jesus saying, Matthew 6.19, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And our country is currently facing the toughest financial times, at least in my lifetime, in many of our lifetimes. Many people are feeling... The crunch, painfully. And just this week, it's, it's, if it wasn't so painful for so many, it would be comical to watch our politicians try and work this one out. You know, Washington, the back and forth, whether or not we extend unemployment benefits yet again. Or what about the Bush tax cuts? Can we extend the Bush tax cuts? Do we give it to everybody? Do we just give it to those making a certain amount? How do we, you know, and, and I look at them going... <laughs> I, I realize we voted you into office, but 
Who gave you the right to decide how we're... I just, anyway, don't get me started. Here's the real question, and I would love to walk up into Washington and just ask this. I'd like to walk into the halls of Congress and say, have we forgotten the Lord's place in this country? The Lord's place in all this? Psalm 50, verse 12, the world is mine and all it contains. The world is mine, God says, and all it contains. You know, the problem is the world doesn't look at God anymore. Did you know the Global Climate Change Conference in Cancun, and I'm sure many of you are following this very closely, the Global Climate Change Conference began with an invocation to a pagan goddess. Now, let me just read this to you. This will tick you off. Washington Post, November 29, 2010. Christiana Figueres, the Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Now, when you have a title that long, there's already a problem. Okay? Pastor Rick. Short season. Christina Figueres. She opened the conference noting that Ixchel, and I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right, but I really don't care. Ixchel was not only goddess of the moon, but also, quote, the goddess of reason, creativity, and weaving. Weaving. May she inspire you, because today... You are gathered in Cancun to weave together the elements of a solid response to climate change using both reason and creativity as your tools. She went on, Excellencies, the goddess Ixchel would probably tell you that a tapestry is the result of the skillful interlacing of many threads. I'm convinced that 20 years from now, we will admire the policy tapestry that you have woven together and think back fondly to Cancun and the inspiration of Ixchel. We're living in Babylon! I couldn't believe that I read that. Eggshells, that's good. The goddess eggshell. I like that. That's how it must be pronounced. But remember the context of Psalm 108. The Jews back in the land return from captivity and the psalm is a perfect one to arrange and sing because it reminded them of who held the title deed to the land. As they came back in, this land belongs to God. It's His to give. It's His to take. He took it as He sent us into captivity and now He's giving it back. It is the Lord's portion. It is His title deed. It did not belong to the gods of the surrounding nations. No fear. Whether it's eggshell or anyone else. I'm going to use that the rest of the morning. (laughs) I'm going to start calling you, Spencer, like two days before. Hey, what would you do with this word? That's really good. It's true, gang. The people of Israel lost the land once. And it's true, they would lose it again. But it would never be lost to the hand of God. It's His. And He holds the deed. And by the way, the whole thing, the deed of title... Oh, I, I won't get into the title, deed of birth, but Revelation, we, I can't go there right now. Plus two. But it's His to give. It's His to renew. It's His to restore. Well, okay, but how does that renew the heart? How does the portion of the Lord, and knowing that God owns everything, how does that renew the heart? Because if everything is the Lord's portion, and not mine, what am I worried about? Do my children fret and worry every month when I go in to sit down and do the bills? No. They know it's going to be fine. Because they don't think of that. They're down playing. They're just having a good time. 
They have no idea. Then I'm either going, hey, carry the one. It's no issue for them. Hey, children of God, let God do the bills. Let Him take care of the mortgage. Let Him worry about the title deeds, all the things that we own. That renews the heart. And what better time to remember? I just, I just love how, how it continues on because there's more than God's portion. There's God's protection. God's protection. Number four, the steadfast heart rests in the protection of God. It's not only renewed in the portion of God, it rests in the protection of God. Verse eight, he says, Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is also the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my toilet bowl. That's the real meaning of the word. The Lord is marvelous. <laughs> Moab is my watchful over Edom. I shall throw my shoe. It means it means a, a conquest. I'll toss my shoe over you was a, a phrase meaning to forcefully take it. I will forcefully take Edom. Over Philistia I will shout aloud and it's a shout of victory. And God is saying all these things. Israel, I am, and this is the Lord speaking in this section, verses eight or, or 7, 8, and 9. And the Lord's saying, Israel, I am promising you my portion and my protection. Don't worry about Moab. Don't worry about Philistia. Don't worry about Edom. Moab's my toilet bowl, man. What does that say? They will be flushed. And the same promises came of provision or God's portion and His protection. Those same promises apply to you and to me. Not because we're ripping them off from Israel, but because they're repeated throughout the New Testament. God's portion for His people. God's protection of His people. Now, I talked about this Wednesday night. I'm going to bring it up again because I think we all need to hear it. Back in verse 15 of Psalm 105, talking about Abraham and the psalmist remembering kind of the history of Israel and all of God's goodness. He says specifically, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Don't do them any harm. God protected Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's family, Joseph. On down the line, God protected them because they were His people, because they were His anointed. Abraham was God's anointed chosen man through whom He would raise up Israel. And so He says, Do not touch My anointed ones. And gang, the application is for you if you are an anointed one in Christ Jesus. How do I become one of them? Give your life to Jesus. If you've done that, guess what? You're anointed. You're anointed by the Spirit of Christ when you come to Him in faith. 1 John 2.20 You have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. And I said this Wednesday, so this is a repeat for some of you. If you are in Christ, anointed with His Holy Spirit, embrace your anointing with confidence. Stand strong, anointed ones. You walk in the protection of God. And yet so many Christians will define their spiritual life in terms of assaults and attacks rather than victory and triumph. But I think the definition's off a bit. If you are striving, you're not resting. And in the New Testament, Paul writes 2 Thessalonians 3.3, The Lord is faithful, He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Why should I shudder? Why should I worry? First Peter 1.5 You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now I've read the end of the story and we win. Christ wins. 
It's a done deal. And it's marvelous. It's wonderful. Moab, my toilet bowl. Edom, I'll shoo them. Philistia, I'll shout the shout of victory. Enemies are history. And the psalmist says in verse 10, Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Now quickly, there's a little history to understand this verse. There's a time when David was fighting. And he recognized God's power in conquering Edom. David was fighting a battle to the north. Second Samuel chapter 8, First Chronicles 18 detailed the story. He's fighting from the north. And because he's engaged up there, suddenly the Edomites attack. And there's a problem. And so he sends Joab and some of his other men down to fight. And they go in and they rout the men of Edom and they actually go into Edom and they conquer Edom. And it's believed that in part of that conquering, they came right into the heart of Edom and conquered a major stronghold of rock and stone called Petra. Joab conquered Petra, which was considered to be impregnable, impenetrable. And so there's an an historic meaning behind this verse. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? To victory over the the stony, rock-walled city of, of Petra. But this verse has a great prophetic meaning in, as well. Because Petra there, this voice, this verse points ahead to a time when Israel will be led into the stronghold. At least to a stronghold in the wilderness. And there are a lot of biblical indications that it will be Petra. We don't know for sure. I'm not going to paint an absolute on that one. But Revelation 12.14 talks about Israel being lifted and brought into a place of security, protection in the wilderness for the last three and a half years of tribulation on the earth. What's that got to do with this whole steadfast heart deal? Listen, Petra means rock. And God gives victory in that place. Petra is a picture of hardness, of a city carved in the stone. But it's also a picture of strength in that same carved city. It's hard to get into, hard to fight against. A stronghold. We don't want to have stony hearts, rock-hard hearts that are hardened by or even against the world roundabout. This is critical. Christians, as we grow in our faith, we don't want to get hardened to the world. Because the more hardened we get to the world, the more we're going to close down and stick to ourselves. So somehow, we have to recognize the hardness that comes from the world, but not ourselves be hardened by it. The threat of the world. And and if we function in our own strength game, even in the name of Christianity, as so many will do, we can end up hardened against the world. Now, we don't desire stony hearts, we desire steady hearts. Steady hearts, firm as a rock, but soft in the Lord. Because the steady heart rejoices and relaxes, is renewed and finds rest in the Lord. And so who will lead me into that place of strength? Without the heart getting hard, only the Lord can do that. Have you not yourself, verse 11, oh God, rejected us? Of course He had. They went to Babel. And will you not go forth with our armies, oh God? Oh, give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. Remember what is going on. The people are there. They're trying to rebuild in the city, and they're getting constant threats. 
to be taken down. When Nehemiah and the group finally return, they come to build the wall back up around Jerusalem and they're building the wall with a hammer or a chisel in one hand and a sword in the other. Because they had, to, they had to work and be prepared to fight at any moment. It was very tense. Who will then deliver us against the adversary? And he says, listen, for deliverance by man is in vain. Deliverance by man is in vain. Who do you turn to for deliverance and for strength and for counsel and for confidence in your life? Do you, do you call up a parent? A wife? Do you turn to a, a husband? A boyfriend, a a counselor? You're way ahead of me. You're already pointing to the Lord. (laughs) I was building up to that, you know? Isaiah chapter 30. A wonderful prophecy. A wonderful statement from the Lord. He says, Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. Even Egypt whose help is vain and empty. Israel was trailing down to Egypt trying to get help. God said, that's a waste of your time. It's vain, it's empty. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, Isaiah 30, verse 15, in repentance and rest you will be saved, in quietness and trust is your strength. If you look to anyone for help other than the Lord, you may end up stony-hearted. You may end up with a hard heart rather than a steadfast heart. God alone has that ability to form and preserve the heart while keeping it soft. So why is Psalm 108 here? We've already read it. I mean, in essence, in the other two Psalms, the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup of Psalm 108 is nice. The two taste great together. But why is it here? If we've already gone through this, why do we need to do this again? You know, there's some Bible scholars who won't even comment on Psalm 108. I looked through a couple of commentaries where they just said, refer back to Psalm 57 and Psalm 60 because we've already covered this, and they go right on to Psalm 109. And it got me thinking, well, so why is this here? Why is this placed here? Why Psalm 108? Why this this patchwork of two psalms into one? And those saying again, it's just a piece of patchwork. And so it's not really anything new. Really? Did God forget that He had already spoken these words? And so He needed to do so again. Is He unaware that He's repeating Himself? Now, I'm not divine. I know it's a shocker for some of you. Do you think that when I repeat myself on Sunday morning something that I said exactly on Wednesday night, do you think that I'm not aware of that? Do you think on a Wednesday night when I go over something that we've covered again and again and again that that I've I've just forgotten? Now some of you are nodding yes, but I have my previous I have my previous notes to consult, so I know what I've already said. Why will we bring things up again and again? Is it possibly because God knows our hearts so well? as to provide a way that we would be steadfast in the journey home. To bring up the things that need to be brought up again. Some people say, you know, I've had enough Bible study, thank you. I don't need Bible study anymore. I've heard it all before. I've actually had conversation with people who said, you know, I've been through the whole Bible study, and I'm, 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 you know, I'm looking for some other aspect of spirituality. Well, do you wonder why we waver? When churches across America are more excited about radical than they are about 
the Word of God? Why does God keep repeating Himself? Because as you know, He does throughout Scripture. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. We get it, Lord. Grace and truth. And then He says, oh, by the way, did I mention grace and truth? And He repeats Himself again and again. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and His choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Why do we stumble? Because we stop practicing. But if we were to practice these things continually, I agree with Peter, we would never stumble. He says, in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. And here's the key of the psalm. You get down to verse 13. Here's why I believe it's repeated for us again. Through God, we will do valiantly. It is He who shall tread down our adversaries. Because, number five, gang, the steadfast heart remembers the promises of God. The steadfast heart. Two old psalms rearranged, retooled for a new day, and the returning exiles, they need to sing it again. They need to be reminded that through God, we will do valiantly. It is He who shall tread down our adversaries. We need that affirmation, that confidence spoken over and over in our lives if you want to be steadfast. Now, if you prefer to waver, read other books. Do other things. Deny the Lord time in prayer and Bible study and worship. Step away from that if if you want to be (laughs) back and forth. But if you want to be steadfast... And you stick with the Word of God. And you give the Lord your heart that He might mold it and change it. This is how you develop a steadfast heart. You stay with the Lord. Resolute, unwavering, unfaltering, unswerving, dedicated, persistent, faithful, steadfast. Hebrews 13 verse 5. Listen to the way the writer says this. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? My heart is steadfast. My heart is steadfast, O God. Father, we pray for steadfast hearts in a wavering and difficult world where the waves of deception and sin seem to rise larger, where the consternation and confusion and frustration of the world round about is huge today. Where, Lord, truly we see a more confused and struggling world than we have ever seen. And in the midst of all of this fury and confusion, Lord, I pray that You would make us a steadfast people. Father, give me a steadfast heart. Not to give in to to the wind and the waves of the world. Give each of us the steadfast heart as followers of Jesus Christ. May this fellowship, Father, just be steadfast in our commitment to the Word, in our desire 
to be in Your presence. In our love and our fellowship. In our openness to draw a lost world in to the presence of God. Give us hearts that are steadfast, O God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.